Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Slogging It podcast. As always, I am joined by Eugene and Robbo, but tonight uh, I am incredibly excited to welcome uh, someone that I've known on and off for quite a few years now, uh, the left arm tweaking wizard, um, Gloucestershire County Cricket Club legend that is super dad and quite possibly the nicest man I've ever met in cricket, it is Tom Smith. How are you, mate? Yeah, good, Jono. Thank you very much for having me on. I'm really excited to get stuck in. Yeah, absolute pleasure, mate. It won't be uh, it won't be too tortuous, I promise. Um, <laughs> we always we always start with the um, the same question to everybody. Um, talk us through, you know, how did you get into cricket? Was it a family um, family that got you into it? And what are your first memories of the game? Well, my dad my dad played a little bit at school level, but you know, he didn't really play any cricket of note, to be honest. Um, and the story goes from him that when I was sort of around three or four years old, I was at um, his mum's, my nan's house, um, and I just found a cricket bat in her shed, a little cricket bat that I still have here now um, in the flat. Um, and I just, I was just hooked by it, I think. Like I had, I'm the youngest of five, so I had plenty of, you know, younger, um, older brothers and sisters to throw balls at me all the time. And I was just really obsessed with it from a young age. I think I always played a lot of sports, um, you know, like football and golf and tennis and stuff. But cricket was the one for me, really. I I, um, I then just sort of got involved as soon as I could in Eastbourne Cricket Club. Was, I think I was about, I don't know, five or six going down there on a Sunday morning and just rattling around there. Um, I was just really fortunate, really, that... Um, there were these things available to me near where I lived. I lived opposite a, a big field, um, so there was always green open space to be playing cricket with my sister. So I sort of feel like I was given the best opportunities to to progress with my game. So, so growing up in Eastbourne, I mean, you know, it must have been 
I suppose a very different format to what somebody would have grown up within, you know, maybe center of London or in, in the in the in the more dense parts of England, shall we say? What's it like growing up um, playing cricket in the outskirts of uh, of England? I think that's right. I mean, I'm battling that as a parent myself because um, you know we're living in Bristol. We live on a busy road. Like um, there's plenty of traffic outside, and and I just. I worry about that for them because mine was completely the opposite. I had a big green space, I was just out there playing sport all the time. Um, you know, that sort of community feel where everyone just met up on the field and you had whatever bits of sports equipment you had and you were just playing. Um, and I, I worry that worry about that for my children because I'd, I'd love to have them to have the same experiences. Um, and therefore, it just breeds a little bit of interest in it because it's so easy to do. I think with my girls, like it's hard because you've got to slug the kit somewhere or we've got a bit of room in the garden, but Rosie often hits into the next door neighbor's house and <laughs> you know, it doesn't quite flow as much as we'd like it to. Um, so, yeah, we were very fortunate. We had plenty of space to play and, and there definitely was. A, I did have a good group of friends that were all interested in sport. Obviously, at Eastbourne, you, you would have been able to... I don't. I know in Surrey they call it the festival at Guildford. I, I don't know what they call it in Sussex. But obviously, at Eastbourne, there, there is an outground game most years. I'm not sure if that's still going on. But obviously, being a member of the club down there, you must have had brilliant access as a junior to actually go and watch your... You know, all the heroes from Sussex that, that must have played a, played a part in you wanting to become a professional, I'd guess. Yeah, I mean, I was... I was very, very lucky because my dad was also, although he wasn't a great cricketer himself, he loved watching it. And I think he was a plumber and he, he was self-employed. So he had any excuse to have a day off down at the cricket, he loved it. Um, so down at the county week at Eastbourne, um, in those days, um, they used to have a four-dayer and a one-dayer. Um, and then all Saffron's members got to watch all the days. So, you know, I can remember years and years ago when they were playing Yorkshire, like Darren Goff and Michael Bevan and, you know, like, good county players um and I just I was really interested in it I, I followed Sussex and I took a lot of interest in what they were up to and um in the Saffron's you had good access to the players and because the players were just sort of sat in the pavilion and then the supporters were in the pavilion so I just remember as a young kid just wandering up to pros and just chatting to them and it was amazing it was a dream just meeting these idols I mean someone like James Kirtley who's like my idol and someone I looked up to from a very young age, being an Eastbourne guy, you know, just watching them perform and being right next to them was incredible. Um, and then I guess that moved on to, we used to go down to the county ground as well and watch them play there and eventually got into the junior age groups. It must have been, like you say, supporting them and following them, going through those junior age groups must have been something sort of really special to eventually get that contract in 2006 must have been like really good. However, they had some great spin bowlers at the time, like during your time there, with Mushtaq Ahmed being one and, and, and Chawla slightly later on. But was working with them guys positive for you or was it always a bit of a, like they you were looking, you were after their spot kind of thing? I don't know. I think that first point you're making, because I supported them and I was Sussex mad and, you know, I just, it meant so much to me. I wonder with actually when I got there, it was a bit too much for me and I didn't really know how to cope. Like I was, they were my peers, but I saw them, all those greats, as like these superhumans, like my idols. I couldn't believe it. You know, I was in a change room with Matt Pryor and Chris Adams and Murray Goodwin. Um, and in a way, my move away probably helped me calm down a bit and just, you know, just playing cricket for cricket's sake. But definitely in that that time, just even the the juniors, never mind Mushy and actually Sack Lane was there for a year as well. Yeah. 
you know, the duty was like me, Ollie Rayner, Will Beer, Rory Hamilton Brown, Michael Yardy, um, all of us trying to get into one or two spots. And it just was never going to work. And we ended up, you know, in certain formats, that was your format. So one year I played 50 over cricket and did all right, but then didn't play anything else. And, mm. you know, and then Ollie would just play four days and, you know, he could have played in different formats. So it was, it was disjointed. It was always going to happen. Um, and I think Sussex did really well by me and kept me for probably one or two years to give me the best chance for me to eventually crack it. And I could see that wasn't going to happen. I needed a new environment. I think they knew that as well. Um, unfortunately, Chris Adams had gone to Surrey and through the Sussex connection, I got my go at Surrey. Um, so, interestingly, Smithy, you say about um, having access to you know greats. Like obviously, Kurtz was a massive star for... Sussex, England, uh, and obviously Eastbourne, born and bred as well. I remember, obviously, the time when we got to know each other, probably 2007, 2008, that when I was living in Hove at the time and, and, and around, you know, never playing with you guys, but getting to know you all, that the cricketers pub just outside the ground, you guys would always go after a game and it was just full of fans and all of the boys were... It, it's that good old Sussex by the sea thing, isn't it? The... The, the fans are very much a part of the players and the players are very much a part of the, of the fans. And it's a, something that seems really important to, to the players to engage quite closely with the fans. Yeah, I mean, even now, um, the opposition, when we're there, we always try and go to the cricketers for a drink if we can. Like, I, I think it's, it's so convenient, but also I think players are so connected to the supporters and understand the role that they have within the game and how you know, they're, imp they're important people and we need to get to know them. And um, I still, those early days, you were just such good um, philosophies around the club, you know, that they were so welcoming as a young player. And, you know, it wouldn't be seen strange if a senior player just took you down there for a drink after the game. And, you know, you just wanted to learn as much as possible. And it was easy. I think now with the, the amount of travel in the game, you don't often get those moments where you can just have a quick beer and have a chat to everyone. It's sort of on to the next game and, you know, you don't get those opportunities now. There's so much travel and and that's a shame because it's a big part of it. The, the learning I got in those first few years from all those great players was so important to my mm. foundation as a cricketer. And actually some of the things that are part of my fibre are sort of from those early days and seeing how they went about it and why that was such a successful team. How, um, I mean, I, I, Murray, just watching Murray Goodman, Goodwin bat, I just thought he was absolutely different level. I mean, he was a great fella off the field as well, but what was he like to bowl at? Because he'd everything, you know, just see, I remember he, he brought a bat into Newbury once that he'd been on the bowling machine with, and there must have been four inches, it, nothing at four in, the bottom four inches of the blade, then everything at four inches in the middle and nothing outside it. I mean, the, the fella was an absolute gun, wasn't he? I think with those guys, it's also their their professionalism, like their preparation, how they go about preparing for an innings. You know, it wasn't someone that hit thousands of balls, but he hit an intent number of balls. Like when he trained, there was something on it. There was a there's a specific nature to his practice of who he was going to play against. So I remember that you know, and they used to prepare to play against um, Lancashire, and they were getting ready for Chapel and Flintoff and Sajmood. You know, like his training just stepped up to do that. You know, nasty training that no one wants to do, but he's in there. And then if you've got your best player doing that, then for us yeah, lot, yeah. you know, that it's powerful. You've got the best player in there, he's averaging 50, doing the tough practice, and you're out here having underarms. Like, that doesn't really <laughs> quite work. And it was just inspirational, you know. 
And the same with Mushy. Mushy was bowling, 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 bowling all the time. Always had a ball in his hand. And, you know, they're two of the best county players at the time. So I think it just bred more winners in the change room. Everyone just wanted to try and get better all the time. And you were phenomenally successful at that round, around about that time. I remember Tim Jarvis. I think you won two county championships back to back, didn't you? And then there was all these signs around Hove saying, you know, three in a row, can we? And stuff like that that Jarvo had come up with and posted around the place. But there was a brilliant feeling around the ground and the, and the club at that time, wasn't there? On such a high from being so successful. Yeah, I think, you know, I was just a supporter. I played a handful of games in my period, really. But to be a part of the dressing room and to see all the success and watch those guys... You know, in some real memorable games like that, um, the CNG final when they beat Lanks and when they beat Nottingham to win the Pro 40 with that six off the last ball, you know, like real epic, epic games. And it was just Look so nice. Face. I love that. You should talk about that more often. <laughs> <laughs> but they're we just incredible saw. games. And I was fortunate to see them from the dressing room, which it was an honour. So from, um, I mean, you moved on to Lords then, and obviously you obviously caught somebody important at Lords as I, possibly Gus Fraser if he was around at that time. I mean, what's it like? I mean, you know, coming from the Middlesex League, my, from the Middlesex League myself, um, you know, what's it like having Lords as a home to play cricket at? Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a place that I only experienced in cup finals before with Sussex. I think you know, been there with the CNG Trophy win with Sussex, and and I hadn't actually been there. I don't think as a, as a Sussex player, um, so I sort of turned up um, with a real excitement. And then the way my career went in that first few years is I only played twenty twenty or one days really. I think I might have only played one four day. So I was always playing in packed crowds, um, and so I just had a real <laughs> biased view on what Lords was like. I was just constantly playing in front of a lot of people there, thinking I was a hero. Um, and I didn't get um, some of those playing on the edge of the square with a 10-metre boundary with no one in the ground. Um, I was lucky. Um, so it was just very magical. Um, everything about the place was lovely. I mean, I was very fortunate. I lived in West Hampstead as well and then got involved with Hampstead Cricket Club and played there with some lovely people. So my Middlesex days were lovely. I think um, I probably didn't quite take my opportunities that were given to me. Although there were spinners around, I, I was given opportunity and I just didn't quite take it um, and I ended up losing my spot towards the end, which was um, which was fine. I had more than enough opportunities to cement my place and I just didn't quite do it. And I knew sort of coming towards the end of my last year that it was time to seek a new challenge. That, that strikes me as slightly different. Obviously, Ollie Rayner had gone for... Middlesex as well that strikes me slightly different to the situation at Sussex like you just said where you didn't feel you took you, you were given opportunities at Middlesex but but didn't quite take them compared to at Sussex where you maybe weren't given the amount was that was that something that you found like quite d difficult to deal with or like a slightly different situation I think in my cricket Middlesex I just got a bit lost I I I thought I'd done well in the 2020s I'd, I was consistent in the 2020s and I was consistent-ish in the limited stuff, but I just didn't get going in the four days. I never found much rhythm. I always felt I was in and out, and that was through my own doing. Like, I never really quite settled in the environment and felt I had a run of games. And, of course, you've got to perform well enough to get a run of games, so it's a vicious circle. You're, either, you're not really in rhythm, so you're not getting a lot of cricket, and then you're not doing enough to stay in the team. So um, my four days just drifted away there. Um, and then I just lost my I lost my spot in the fifty overside to Ollie. Ollie had um, come in and had a good couple of good performances, and it was coming up to the twenty twenty, which 
I'd historically been a bit of a banker for them in that. And it, it just looked like the way they were going to balance the team. You know, young Ravi Patel was sort of performing well in the seconds. Oli Rayner was there. Um, they'd got, I um, can't remember who the overseas were then, but it just looked like it was going to be difficult to get cricket in that last year. And the way things were going with Gloucester is both their spinners had got injured. So I'd, I sort of thought it'd be easier to see if I could go to Gloucester and get a tournament than sit on the bench for Middlesex in the last year of my contract. I sort of knew I'd had enough opportunity, but I, I just quite didn't quite crack it there. Yeah. It was interesting seeing that in 2013, you were loaned out for a year, but you since have made that your home across all form- formats. You were just talking about taking your opportunities. I mean, it definitely looks and, and it definitely is, um, you know, something that you've taken with both hands when you've uh, since you've been at Gloucester. Yeah, I think Gloucester was is very similar to Sussex. It's quite, you know, quite a small club with a strong work ethic and they want to make the most out of each individual. And I, and I arrived there for a loan for 2020. Um, and then the coach just said, look, there's a couple of four days. We've got the Cheltenham Festival. Like, could you be available for them? And I sort of had the back of my mind. I knew I was in no rhythm as a bowler in four day cricket. I'd lost a lot of confidence. You know, I'm naturally very an- anxious anyway. And I, I was sort of dreading them thinking, God, how's this going to go? You're on loan. You have an awful Cheltenham Festival. Um, and they don't play four days again. And and luckily, I'd, I just found coaches that worked well for me. John Bracewell was the coach. Richard Dawson was the assistant coach. And they just sort of understood me as a character. They knew I was a little bit nervous, a little bit anxious, and needed a bit more talking to and needed a bit more fluffing around me. And we just found a way of working together. And that's what I've always loved about Gloucester. It's not always one size fits all they sort of try and coach to the individual and get the understanding of the individual which is really important certainly for characters like me who don't like confrontation don't like being overly challenged you know I like to be supported and guided um, and that's how they get the best out of me and I just felt that Cheltenham week and you know I didn't I got a few wickets in the second game I think I got four for in the last innings but I, mean, I didn't do anything amazing but I just felt comfortable in the environment for probably the first time in my career actually being on a field and feeling like I could perform at my best. And, you know, that's a real shame that I hadn't done that before that. I'd probably had seven years professionally where I just didn't feel comfortable. Um, and so since then, I've just tried to grow as much as I can, try and improve year on year. And I still hope I still can improve. Um, feel like I had this year in the 2020 my best year. So therefore, can I get even better next year? Uh, absolutely. I mean, we'll we'll come on to um, the the wonderful work that as a as a county and a club you, you're doing a little later on. Um, you talk about that kind of period of growth that you've gone through at, at the club, but to to turn into you know slightly a, a much darker situation. I mean, um, whilst being a professional cricketer, you know, cross format and whatever, you, your your wife at the time, Laura, was diagnosed with a very rare form of cancer. Um, you know, the most painful experience. Imaginable uh, to, to lose you to your, your wife in 2018. How did that? How did you go about? You know your your job in a position where people you know very much look up to you, and, and but also you know post diagnosis, did you just shut down everything in order? Just like Laura's my focus. I'm going to take care of my family. How did that? How did that happen? It was a real, it was a real tough balancing act because. I think on reflection now, we probably didn't, well, I didn't allow myself to think what might happen. So at the first diagnosis, um, sorry, I'm just looking at what I wrote down to get the dates right, but it was November 2016. So 
she sort of, when Clara was only two months old, um, she was having sort of some itching and there was some sort of issue there. And I think from November to May, when she was eventually got the first diagnosis, it was still thinking it was like gallstones or, you know, nothing overly serious. So life just carried on. She was intermittently in hospital, but, you know, we just bumbled along. And and it wasn't until that point in May where it was like, right, she's having major surgery. She's got stage one cancer. Um, that it, it, we sort of were very shocked and, and surprised. And we didn't have anything in place at that point. You know, Clara was what, six months or so and, and Rosie was two and a half. So it's just trying to work out how on earth this works. And I was very fortunate and I've done a lot of talking about this with the Professional Cricketers Trust and they supported me and they said, well, you know, how do you, what do you want to do? And I was like, well, eventually I'd like to carry on playing, but Laura's going to need a lot of support at home. So mm. they supported us with a nanny and childcare fees initially. So Laura had major surgery and sort of came out. We had a nanny. I then went to play, I think was the Royal London Cup, like a month later, played that. Um, and I guess the way the cricket schedule worked at that point was that all the four days, I wasn't really in line to play anyway. So I was allowed the blocks off to support Laura and then I'd go in then played the 2020. Um, and then that point from sort of June, July of that year, it, everything seemed to be okay. And we were all very positive. I think there were still signs. We knew that things weren't quite right. And Laura was potentially going to need a liver transplant to cure her. So in sort of January of the following year, Laura went off to King's and we um, we were starting to plan for the summer ahead. And that was still really positive. Um, still thinking that, you know, should go and have a transplant assessment and life would move on as normal. And just things started to change quite rapidly from that point. Um, but throughout all of it, I was sort of, because I had the support of the PCA and I had the nanny and Laura was very keen for normal life to resume and the children to see me going to work and carry on playing cricket. So that was really important for us. And so even probably right up towards the end, I was still playing. And I've talked about it a little bit before. I don't know whether it was a good thing for me or not. Like, I, I think it was some way of having a break from reality. But then when I was at cricket, you know, you're playing in a cutthroat environment. And was that the greatest greatest place for me? I don't know. I used to always say, I'll know when it's time to stop. But I think I needed that break from what was happening. And it was some form of processing. But it almost felt when I was at cricket, I was sort of existing within the game and you know, the club were very good and supported me and, and said, look, you're, you can be available or not, you can pull out. Um, so the club played a huge role in that, you know, being very understanding. And, and yeah, I mean, Laura died in August, which was just short. It was in the middle of the 2020 period. And, you know, my season finished at that point. And, and I probably thought, you know, after that point, I wasn't sure what was going to happen. You know, I wasn't sure whether I could carry on playing with a young family or whether I'd be better in a, a more normal job. Um, but it just, the constant support of the PCA has allowed me to make best decisions for me. Um, mm. And I felt that following year after Laura died that cricket was the right place for me. I'd, probably in that winter, I had some dark moments where I didn't think I'd go out there again. Um, but definitely, um, I feel so very fortunate that I did decide to play that following year because it's given me such a, a great break from what has been reality. When you, um, I mean, though, you know, the three of us play amateur cricket. I mean, uh, you know, 50 overs on a Saturday, I find myself kind of, you know, on occasion drifting, even, you know, which is, you know, having been captain for the last six years isn't necessarily the best thing to say. But, you know, like when, you know, you had so much going on outside of cricket, 
you know, if you're if you're even playing the, the Royal London One Day Cup and it's forty overs or fifty overs or whatever it is, to to be switched on for for that period of time must have been been incredibly difficult considering what you had going on at home. Did did you ever find yourself, you know, thinking about life outside cricket whilst at cricket? Post bereavement cricket was my safe space cricket was my sanctuary it was the the time away from all the stress so it's the opposite of my career I spent my whole life cricketing life before Laura died worrying at the cricket field like my home life was good I was happy when I went to cricket I was anxious and nervous and stressed and then when Laura died or through Laura's illness it flipped the other way and actually I have stresses at life you know a single parent um, panicking about the children, you know, am I doing that right? I wish Laura's here to tell me if this is right, is that right? Constant decisions, constant self-doubt. Go to cricket, the opposite. You know, just happy to have a break, happy to perform, excited to be out on a green space, like just yeah. loving cricket for the first time. Um, and so it's the complete opposite. Become Actually, and when the summer's here, you know, just want it to be every day. Just so excited to be out yeah. there. Um which is a complete flip. And I hope it lasts. I hope it, I still always really enjoy my career. Like for the next three years I've got on my contract, I hope every day is, will be the same and it doesn't go back to the other way because that's not much fun. When, um, was it, obviously when she passed in, in the August, was it, was that quite sudden? Because obviously you were still playing. I mean, how aware were you of, the, the, the stage at which she was at because I mean you, you hear stories don't you about you know one day people are fine and then they're diagnosed or you know they get a re-diagnosis and then within a week or two weeks was it something that changed very quickly towards the end that you were kind of taken by surprise or was it something was that time scale always kind of within your mind frame not really I think so the January 2018 um, she was in Kings and everything was very positive and then sort of by May um they were constantly checking whether cancer had returned. Um, and then at that May point was what she need ideally would have been, not ideal, but they needed the cancer to be isolated within her liver so then it could be transplanted without the spread. And essentially what happened in May was that the cancer had spread to a lymph node, so therefore she couldn't have any further surgery on it. So the plan in May when she came home was that she would have preventative chemo um, for the next nine months so when she came back um, it was very sad because we, you know it's a terminal diagnosis uh, time is short but no one knew how short it would be how she would react to the chemo and so she went through three rounds of chemo which got us to the sort of July point and of which by that point I mean it was all staring us in the face staring her in the face and I think she knew more than what I did I think I just blocked everything out and just shut down and just didn't want to deal with it um, and just pretended as if everything was okay but visually she had cancer growths growing out of her skin at that point um, wow. and so it was just shocking and we went in for her sort of routine um, chat with the oncologist and he just said look she's got three weeks to live or you've got three weeks to live and and it was just so sudden because I think we'd, we'd sort of walked in there and we knew that thing, you know, we felt, oh, I felt it wasn't quite right. But at no point did I think that anyone was going to say you've got three weeks to live. Um, and then they just had about four or five days of it just not being real life. It just didn't feel like real life. And we 
went from there and we walked back and we'd met a couple of people for dinner dates and lunch dates and I think it was just looking back on it now it seems crazy but it was just I think some way of just keeping that normality all the time and just trying to show the children that you know things are changing but we're still doing normal things um and yeah I mean a hell of a lot of reflection like I might for the last two and a half years thinking about all these moments and and advice that I can give to other people that's why I'm here because I want to talk about it and hopefully someone will be listening to this that it may resonate with and it can support in some way but it it's a crazy period of time like it just doesn't make sense even now saying it it doesn't feel like it's actually my story it's just I can't believe it happened how did the um how did you go about telling the girls and and how did they react to it I mean because obviously at such a young age that must have been incredibly difficult to actually you know have the right words to make them understand the severity of the the situation they were facing yeah well they were three and one um so very very young um and they were involved at every way because it was a long period well not that long but a long period from the sort of first hospital visits till the last few that they were always coming into hospital they're always visiting laura they're always very active in understanding or their own level of understanding and we were always telling them roughly what was happening and mm. and trying to keep them as well educated as possible as you can with a three and one year old you know trying to understand what was going on but them to be involved and then when we got to that final um few weeks we had the st peter's hospice um sort of nurse that came in and chatted to us and and she just guided us through the last few bits of you know, Laura read them a few stories and explained what was going to happen. But I mean, we gave, you know, we tried to give them as much information as possible, but ultimately their ages was very tough to communicate with and understand. Um, yeah. I still think even now it's difficult. They, they entertain those conversations. We talk about Laura all the time, every day, and it's still yeah. quite hard for them to understand it because they're just so young. They have a concept of death, but it's you know, it's really hard for, you know, now they're six and four and it's still very tough. So with a three and one year old, it just puts it into perspective. Yeah, of course. How did, how did, once Laura was given that, you know, that, I mean, I just can't get my head around the, the fact that she was, no. you know, told, oh, you've got three weeks to, to, to live in effect. And, you know, I imagine that's squeezing as much as you can and enjoy, squeeze every last, you know, second out of the time that you got left with the people that you love. How did how did she react to that? And and you know what was the did that change her the way in which she acted in a you know to actively try and drive as much as she could out of those that short period that she had left in terms of with the kids and whatever? Or did she just carry on as a you know she, you've always referred to her as an absolute trooper and you know phenomenal person in the way in which she dealt with it? Yeah, she she was a complete trooper. You're dead right. She she um. She knew what she wanted to do. Um, she had written previously a few bits of what she wanted to achieve, and I think we always saw those things in the distance, and then they were right in front of us. Um, so things like on that day we got the three weeks, she booked an appointment with a solicitor and we did our wills, and we went down there, and this poor solicitor, she was like, I've got three weeks to live, I want to do a will, and I need it done like in the next few days. And this, this poor guy is... <laughs> just trying to understand what on earth's going on. Um, so we got the will done. Um, she was like, well, I want to go to the cinema. And we went to every man cinema. I think that evening, like it just went there. And um, and then the next day, there was just various things going on. She's like, right, I want to write um, birthday cards till they're 21. And so we went to a card shop and bought 
enough cards till both the girls are 21, which you still have now. Um, and I think those first few days are just matter of a matter of fact. This is what we're going to do. This is what we need to do for the girls, and we're going to get it done. And then I think the hardest part was we then had a bit of a rotor of like people saying their goodbyes, but not saying their goodbyes. So sort of everyone coming in and sort of saying hello. And when she was well enough, we might go for a lunch or whatever, or then they'd just come and visit us in the house. And I think it was lovely that everyone got that moment, but it was must have been extremely hard for her. Because for me, I look back at it now and think it was really hard. At the time, it was lovely that everyone was coming in and having their opportunity with Laura. But for Laura, she would have had all those goodbyes of people coming in and coming to see her for that reason. And I think that must have been yeah. really hard for her. Yeah. Although she was so mm. strong and so positive and talked to everyone. It, um, a lot of this is done in reflection, like in my head. I've spent, you know the last two and a half years in my own head piecing these things together thinking about them a lot and at the time I, I probably didn't think a whole lot I think I'd just squashed everything down and tried not to I just tried to be in the moment and support Laura as much as I could without dealing with anything else that was going on around me I think that's I can't even begin to imagine what that must have been like that, that you're saying what you've just done there is all of a sudden your mindset must have just been 100% right I mean as a it always is 100% on your kind of wife and what's going off but in that situation there must have just been nothing else like whatever you want fine we can sort it we can sort it um was that obviously with the kids and stuff was that was it hard to kind of focus on that or was that was it always right the kids are there but Laura's there was it was it difficult or did it just switch off and off it went I think we we were lucky in those final week or so because all the fam we only had a small two-bed apartment at the time we had the whole we had all of Laura's family so I had her brother her sister and her mum and dad all, all with us um in the flat together um obviously we still had the nanny to help the children and we were all there together and I think in some ways you know, Laura really felt that support from all of us and all of us just wanted to do what we could for her, um, as she would do for for her. But it, it was, I think that just added to all the chaos that you got everyone helping, which was lovely. Um, but everyone going through the exact same pain at the same time in the same room for, I think it was at least a week, you know, it was hard um, to see everyone in that space. Um and having their own way of trying to cope in something that, you know, it's just impossible to cope in. With it, with the, with the girls, you, you, you're obviously, a, you know, a three format cricketer and that's how you, you know, provide for the girls. Um, pre lockdown, that must've been hard enough, but obviously once, once lockdown hits, um, you know, your, your parent, your educator, your, you know, I, it was quite nice. I, I read in the, the the article that you did with the cricketer, you referred to as almost being good cop and bad cop at the same time. Like, you know, how how have you navigated that? Uh, it must have been, you know, brilliant to spend so much time with them, but incredibly difficult as well to 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 have all the emotions of, of work and lockdown and parenting and everything else all rolled into one. It was a really strange journey that first lockdown because. I think it was Mother's Day the weekend before. And so Mother's Day is a tricky day for us. Um, means a lot to me. doesn't mean as much to the children at the moment. Like they don't have that concept of Mother's Day. They understand that it's a big day and we celebrate it. And, you know, But there is also that sadness as well. And we spent it with friends. 
which was lovely. They invited us there. And so it was all mixed up emotion. And it's always a day that you are very aware that you're on your own. Those sorts of days, you know, Valentine's Day as well and Laura's birthday, you know, those particular moments are heartbreaking. And so we got through that. And then it was like the, whatever, the Friday after lockdown came. And I'm just very aware that, you know, I'm in this on my own. I was moving house as well. I'm moving house with the two girls with no support because it's going to be locked down. And, you know, my family lives a long way away from Bristol. And it, it just, it was the worst experience because it's just no way of being the supportive parent that I wanted to be because the education was so important to me as well. The, the blurred lines between trying to get them to complete a piece of work and also then support them and nurture them and make them feel loved and safe in a, in a tough scenario, was it was just impossible. And I just felt myself withdrawing more because I just find it more and more difficult. And likewise, the pressure of cricket because it's like, I'm going to have to play cricket. I hadn't ran because my exercise was spent pushing Clara in a buggy and Rosie riding a bike. That was the only exercise I was sort of doing, preparing for an English county summer. <laughs> like, um, and so all of that was just weighing on me. And, and I just, after, um, I think about six weeks, I thought, right, I'm going to run. And I've, I've only got 10 metre garden, but I just ended up opening the, the bifold doors, using the kitchen, just running forward and back once a day, just to give me a bit more ordered thinking and try and, control the uncontrollable and do a bit for cricket, do a bit for myself. And it, and it eased it because also there was murmurs around the county season returning and, and Rosie actually then got a place in school under the sort of vulnerable child thing, which was, you know, a huge relief. But then also in that moment, it's like we've only qualified for that because Laura's died. So it was a real... Yeah. These moments, they're tough, those moments, because you sort of feel like you're lucky on one hand, but actually you're not because you don't have your wife there. So it's it's so tough. But luckily she went back then, the season started, and things got a bit easier. But those those two or three months were just brutal, absolutely brutal. Yeah, I can believe they were absolute chaos. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, talking of your three girls, do they actually know what you do for a living? Do they know that you're a cricketer? I mean, when they see you on the telly every now and then, when you know, do they do they sort of do you have those moments as they know what you're doing? Yeah, I think they've grown up with me um, being wherever I'm playing club cricket, even for Bedminster, they come down there and and spend a bit of time down there in the afternoon. So, yeah, they definitely are very involved in my career. I think it's. When I did the Rainbow Day um, a couple of years ago when we played Sussex and raised some money for the Rainbow Trust, I think they really enjoyed being involved in that and coming out and being... Um... I love that photo. That photo of you with the girls in their, in their tops is just lovely. And, you know, that Rosie often talks about it and we're going to do the Rainbow Day again. And, you know, she loved getting dressed up for it and being involved in it. And really it was their story, you know, their story yeah. of the support that they'd received um, played out in a cricket match by you know, my closest friends, which was lovely that we could do that for them. Um, so they've always really got involved in my career. I think Rosie's quite proud now and um, introduces me as a cricketer now. This is my dad, he's a cricketer. So Brilliant. it's always a yeah. nice way to start a conversation in the park with someone else's parent. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. What we'll do now, chaps, is um, we just need to snip in a little bit of uh, of the Lord's Taverners stuff. So what we might do now is just take a break and uh, you'll hear a short message from the Lord Taverners. The Lord's Taverners is the UK's leading youth cricket and disability sports charity. We break down barriers and empower disadvantaged and disabled young people to fulfil their potential and build life skills. 
Our cricket programmes support some of the most marginalised and at-risk young people in the UK, using sport and recreation to build links and encouraging groups to play sport together. We tackle issues such as knife crime, unemployment, radicalisation and also isolation, something we are all feeling right now. Last year, our programmes impacted the lives of more than 12,000 young people and, with your support, will help even more in the future. Find out more and make a donation at lordstaverners.org and help us to continue our life-changing work. Thank you. Well, thank you to our uh, charity partners, the Lord's Taverners. Uh, don't forget, if you would like to contribute to the Lord's Taverners, you can do by texting TAVS11 to 70331. Just remember, you must be 16 years old or older and have the bill payers' permission. Back to you, Tom. Um, Gloucester, in the past few years, have had a, some interesting personal items go off from members of the team. Ian Harvey's wife passed away. Michael Klinger's um, wife also suffering um, from cancer. And Gareth Roderick's dad, uh, unfortunately, ending his own life. Um, but these, I know, I know the, one of the coaches at Gloucester, and he's, he's always said this when I've spoke to him. Um, it seems to have brought the club closer together and have that sort of massive family feel. And do you think that's contributed to your success in the last couple of years? I think without doubt, the emotional intelligence for sure has just gone through the roof. I think um, actually my dad actually died in 2015 and I I was struck at that point when we hadn't really gone through all of those other bits that um, there was that level of care and um, when Richard Dawson had just taken over at that point and he, you know, just acted with absolute class. Garen Jones was the captain and they just gave me a room to breathe at that point. It was just before the season and then... So as other things have happened, and like you've mentioned before, it's the boys have just stuck together. I think they understand. Um, you know, we understand one another. We've been together for a number of years. Um, we're extremely close, and I think I think it's just a level of understanding that nothing's always perfect. So you know, for the last two years, I've been late to training nearly all the time. So I do the school drop off before, and then I get to training when I can. And you know, some I left a game a couple of years ago to go to sports day. Like I just people just understand that that's really important to me and the children shouldn't miss out just because Laura died. And, and you know, we have that across the board with different things that people have gone through. And I, I just think often in sport, it can be very military, you know, very regimented. No, this is what we do. We've always done that for the last 15 years. And, and actually it isn't, you know, it's about prioritising the individual. And that's where Richard Dawson's really understood that. And with Ian Harvey as his assistant coach as well, what he's been through, like as a management group, they're extremely understanding. And and probably that's what, you know, will serve Dorse incredibly well in his new role he's got with the ECB because of the, the stuff he's been exposed to. And and although it's probably been extremely tough for him, it's it's been probably a really good learning curve for him. Yeah, obviously it sounds like the club and, and obviously yourself have been through a lot. I mean, that whole bereavement process, you know, how would you advise other people to go through something like that? I know it's really difficult to provide advice for that because sometimes it's just only the only thing that can heal you is time. But sort of what would you advise to people that are not only in, in, in cricket life, but obviously a lot of our listeners have, have different corporate jobs. So how would you advise them, you know, from a process point of view? Is it is it contact with people? Is it just you need space? What, what, what is your view on, on how bereavement works and, and how you got through it? I think it's a sort of trusted circle. I think you naturally, 
um, gravitate to other people that have been through the same experience. I think, you know, me and Har- Ian Harvey don't necessarily talk about it a lot, but I think we have a hell of a lot of understanding around different moments that might be important to one another. And I know when Laura died, going through the Rainbow Centre with Rosie, you often in the waiting room, you sit with other parents. And so you naturally, they've stayed really good friends with me. This other parents are experiencing the same thing. Um, uh, since I've had a couple of mutual friends that have fallen on similar tough times and and they've become good friends like it's sort of a little widow or widower circuit that you you really do trust one another and you're very open with one another and you sort of feel that they're the only people that will understand because they have the shared experience Um, and it's part of the reason why I'm on here trying to talk as much as I can about it because when Laura died the first thing I looked up was celebrities that wives have died. You know, people like Rio Ferdinand, Simon Thomas, Darren Clark, Glenn McGrath, like Andrew Strauss now. You know, just all those people just researching information from sportsmen, sportsmen that have been through the same thing. Mm. Um, and often now, I, I won't listen to too many podcasts, but I certainly listen to all the bereavement ones. Anything that, you know, like Luke Sutton you had is really interesting to me. Andrew Strauss, you know, people like that I want to listen to and I want to hear what they've been through and how they've coped and, and what they've found has been useful and and how they deal with all the self-doubt because I think there's so much doubt because you haven't got that partner there to bounce off and have ideas from and, and it, you know, it's a lonely place at times. Are there any specialist kind of bereavement um, counsellors or, or bodies uh, that, that you've dealt with that you know, maybe worth directing people to if they either are or, you know, either outwardly or perhaps inwardly, you know, that one of the problems that we try and talk about a lot is and try and highlight is don't suffer in silence. You know, the first step towards recovery is actually, you know, admitting that things that you may be going through things and that talking is, is the, the first step out of that. Is there, are there any particular people that you've spoken to that you could recommend to people? Yeah, I signed up um, with a sort of... Uh... Facebook group, I don't know if it's a Facebook group, it's a charity actually called Way, Widowed and Young, um, and they sort of operate, they have a national, but then also there's a you know West Country one, um, and for me, I was just, I just love reading, I like reading what people were going through, understanding what they were going through, I didn't offer anything much, but I just, it was nice, it was reassuring to hear that people are going through the same thing, and I did actually pick up one or two friends from there that I still speak to, um, but I think one of the funny stories from that was sort of a few months after Laura died and there wasn't too many jokes around at that point. And I had a look on the Facebook for Way and um, someone had put, um, you know, since I've been a widow or widower, whatever it was, my um, my sex drive has gone through the roof. And I just burst into <laughs> laughter, like how these people just feel in such a safe space to be able to yeah, yeah, yeah. discuss this. And I, I just thought it was... It was you know, and in the darkest of moments, to be able to have a little laugh and and to see that was um, was nice. And I think it's just nice that people are just open and honest, and you're in a safe space because everyone's going through the same thing. I think if that same individual had said that to someone who's married with four kids, they would have felt you know really uneasy about the conversation. Whereas you say it to us, and we're you know accepting of the situation and can can make light heartedness of it. I think obviously it must considering what you've been through it must put things on the cricket field into perspective you know in an instant um as a as a side you know you've got some brilliant young players and we'll come on to that simon will come on to that in a sec but um 
last year, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, our relationship through Woodstock, and it's lovely to see that you're wearing your hoodie tonight, by the way. Um, <laughs> wearing it proudly, good luck. <laughs> <Here we> go. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I just noticed it before. I was like, he's wearing it, good luck. Um, but, um, you know, through, um, I, I obviously have a, a, an interest, uh, you know, with you and Benny and, and Jack at the club. And I genuinely thought, you know, hoped, thought, um, the, the the blast last year was your year, um, and you know a bit of a sickener on to to get to finals day and and to to losing that semi final, um, but um, you know brilliant mix of youth and experience, power hitting, you know brilliant bowlers. Obviously Benny with all of his different slower balls and what have you. Um, is it a disappointment, you know, looking back at that, or is it another platform on which to continually build and think? Look, we're achieving here, and you know gotten into Div 1 of the County Championship and the club's on the, you know, the tra- the trajectory that we're on is absolutely the right the right one. Yeah, uh, I think after we lost against Surrey, I think there was a hell of a lot of disappointment because I think we all felt that that was our, our chance. You know, the cricket we'd played in the group stages, even in the quarterfinal, we blew Northampton away. Like We felt we were going to go into that Surrey game on the, what we felt looked like the same pitch as when we played Warwickshire and smashed them everywhere um, in the groups on Sky when Coe got all those runs. And I think Wicky was a bit sticky, didn't play quite the way we hoped. You know, we'd been stuck in that small changing room for a day and a half. Um, we just didn't come out of the blocks. Like, we just didn't get going. And in a 12-over game, if you lose two overs with the bat, well, we don't, you know, it's, the game's done. You can't make that up. Um, on that sort of surface, uh, as we saw in all of the games, like it was a difficult one to score, apart from when Dan Christian batted on it. But um, <laughs> so that that was a real disappointment. I think on the reflection after the game, the coach rightly said that you know we'd fallen over twice in quarterfinals before that, um, and this year we got one better. We got to the semi-final, and why not next year go one better and win it? You know, like there's a lot to be taken from it. We didn't have overseas players, which some teams had. Um, yeah, just, you know, a group of people who aren't overly superstars. Like, I think we do really well, but we're not, no one's playing for England in that side. And, you know, no one's, what's really lovely now is the people who have been picked up in the 100 ball because people have slowly recognised that Coey and David Payne and Higgins, Miles Hammond, you know, they are big players in the blast. And to be picked up in that is, you know, a huge honour to us as a team because they've been constant performers over the last few years, not just this year. Um, so there's a level of excitement I think we can do better as well you know we brought Chris Dent in this year he did really well and you know he can build from that um, yeah so we and we have Dan Worrell as well the overseas yeah, player yeah, so in, yeah. um, and then if we get two overseas which I don't know what the plan is if we get another overseas you know it makes us even stronger so I do hope we can we can improve you know it's definitely not our ceiling point we can always get better Um there's going to be a bit of a transition now with Richard Dorse leaving and Ian Harvey taking over the reins. So that's going to uh, go in a different direction, maybe. Um, he'll have different ideas, which is exciting. So still a lot to look forward to next year and, and hopefully we can go one more. Benny will be devastated that you left him out of that 100 roll call. <laughs> yeah, he won't forgive me for that. <laughs> Bless him. Um, yeah, I, absolutely. Look, I, I think it's it's incredibly exciting times. Um, I, I remember, you know, that that Knotts game. Simon and I were watching it together somewhere, and obviously Gav Griffiths is one of our Woodstock pros as well. And I've spoken to him about it offline. And you know, Leicestershire were devastated because obviously Knotts were dead in that game, and and 
uh, and all of a sudden then from from nowhere it's it just a lo- you know all number of things transpired against them um and, and Nottinghamshire ended up winning it but it, it's it's almost one of the most beautiful things about cricket isn't it that knots for all money are out of the competition then all of a sudden you know they, they they then go on to win it two weeks later um and, and I suppose that's the the, the great thing and the, the you know I guess the toughest thing about the sport that we all love yeah we we experienced the same thing those two years we got knocked out in the quarters like we we won the groups you know we walked the group where we played Durham in the quarterfinal um top by miles and then we played Durham lowest rank and then got knocked over at home and it just just hurt so much because it's like you have one bad game and your tournament's over and why didn't that just happen in the groups when you won like nearly every game um but that that was all part of us growing up, I think, and dealing with pressure and dealing with knockout cricket because it is, you know, mind over matter sometimes in those games and dealing with pressure. Um, so that was really nice. The way we won against Northampton would bring us a huge amount of confidence, sorry, moving forward because just winning in that fashion, I think, we, you know, we only needed, I don't know what it was, 120 or something, but then Miles Hammond reverse swept the first ball for six. Instead of that being oh, this is a sticky chase, let's do it in the last. It was, no, we'll finish this in 12 overs, thanks. And that, that was really yeah. good and really positive. And taking those positive routes um, will only serve us well in the future. You've obviously mentioned the fact that you've been promoted to Division 1. You've just mentioned a, a load of lads that are getting picked up in the 100. And obviously James Bracey being called up for the England squad, sort of like the first one of that kind of crop getting international recognition. Um do you, th- do you obviously do think there's a lot more opportunities ahead than people in your squad that can play or, or certainly go on to the highest level? Yeah, for James Bracey, it's been lovely to see his quick incline and how quick that can happen. So for, well, probably not for me now, but for anyone who's sort of in their mid-20s to see that, you know, you're only a few innings is away, a couple of good telly games and a, and a good finish to the season. You could be on a Lions tour. Like for, for James... It, you know, it just happened so fast. And then he's in the bubble, you know, as a good Lions tour, and then he's travelled around with England for the last year. Like, what an incredible feeling for him. And, and really, hasn't played a lot of cricket. He's just taken his opportunities at the right time. And I think for anyone seeing that at the moment in our squad, is like, this can turn quite quickly, and I want to work hard, and I want to be like him, and I, I want to try and be better than him, because if he's in the bubble, then, you know, I've got a chance of being in there. Um but selfishly for me, it's nice to have a spy on the inside of the England dressing room. And, you know, I'm still just a cricket nappy and I want to know, you know, what James Anderson has for breakfast and all that sort of stuff. So it's um, <laughs> what they like at playing Monopoly. So it's, um, it's really good. Apparently it's called a duty. That's their go-to and they call the duties what they go for. But it's been really good to just learn a bit more about them because um, at Gloucester we haven't had many England pros, well, I haven't had any really over the last few years, so it's um, great to have a spy John in Lewis the camp. John Lewis is probably the last, isn't he? Yeah. Obviously Jack yeah. famously, but then yeah, John after Yeah, that. Mark Elaine. Oh yeah, of course, Mark, yeah. The bloke, the bloke we interviewed a few weeks ago. I, I can't believe say, it. Yeah, the bloke we interviewed about playing for England, yeah. <laughs> well done, Johnny. What, host? Yeah, uh, perfect, well done. <laughs> T- talking of English spinners and, and watching what has happened or not happened within the Indian tour on, on specifically those wickets that absolutely have been ragging, you know, whichever way you turned it. What is your thoughts on the county season specifically starting so early in the year and finishing so late in the year? 
when you we would argue the wickets are not conducive to spin. Are we playing county cricket when you know the best form of cricket is test cricket and we're not preparing our spinners well enough because we're not giving them the, the right opportunity to bowl at the right time of year? What's your sort of thoughts? Well, my initial thought in my mind was like, how amazing was that weather in lockdown in April? That 30 degree days and not, not a single over of spin was bold. <laughs> Good point, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I 100% agree that spinners just aren't getting the overs in to develop and that's why the cupboard is not bare. There, there's some quality spinners there, but they're just not getting the overs and it depends what ground you play. I just think of someone like Scott Borthwick, really talented leg spinner, got stuck up at Durham. He's just not going to get the ball. So he didn't develop for however long he was there. And he's a fine leg spinner. Um, and yet, if you'd have started his career at Surrey or at Lancashire, where Matt Parkinson's bowled a load of overs, or even he started at Somerset with, with these turning pitches, I, I believe you have to have, a, obviously, a talent to spin the ball. But then you need to bowl a lot of match-based overs to get up to standard. And if you can't bowl match-based overs, you're not going to improve. I actually think that there's a case a little bit lower than the professional game. And when I started in league cricket, me and Ollie Rayner bowled 25 overs each end. It was a 58-over <laughs> game. Two, two seamers bowled, shared those eight overs, and then me and Ollie bowled for the rest of the game. We did that for four or five years. From a 15-year-old, we were doing it. Um, and just you develop quicker because you're bowling overs. Now in club cricket, it's limited over cricket, 10 overs on tiny grounds, which you struggle to... And like experienced spinners will get through their overs, but if you've got a seventeen-year-old leggy on a tiny boundary, you just can't bowl him, yeah, or yeah. it shatters his confidence if you do bowl him. Yeah. So I think they need to look at. I know none of us in club cricket want all that longer format, but there does need to be a, a press for developing spinners in those longer format games, which then, when they arrive in professional cricket. You then play a lot of second eleven cricket, where that is three-day cricket, and you're bowling big spells. But again, some of the wickets in second eleven cricket can be a bit fruity and therefore your spinner doesn't get the overs that he should do. Um, so I think spinners are just starved of match-based overs, which then when you go going up the levels, it makes it tougher because you go to India, you've got to bowl all the overs. Um, and luckily, Leach and Bess are probably the best people to do that because that's what they do for their county side. But if you asked someone that doesn't bowl the overs as much, you know, they, they need a lot more preparation. Um which is tough. Um, I, do, I do think Leach and Bess are the best spinners, and I, and I hope I know Bess has struggled a bit with confidence. And but I do, I do think it's a bit harsh that he bowls a few low full tosses, and then you know something gets left out of the side. I think you know spin bowling's a rhythm, and you can go in and out of rhythm within one spell. And I just think you know one bad session doesn't ruin the other ten Test matches that he's played in and bowled incredibly yeah. well and done a job. Um, that series in South Africa is fantastic. Like if we didn't have him holding one end up and being aggressive to those left-handers, you know, it would have been a different trip. But he bowled brilliantly. Do you think England are trying to turn their spin bowlers into Indian spinners as opposed to being English spinners? Like traditionally, English spinners have always been a kind of hold and end up, dot bowl dots, don't set overly aggressive fields. But we've obviously seen Ashwin. Lion, all the spinners over there go right. We've got five men round the bat, we want you to bowl this line. Do you think that's they're trying to turn them into not the bowler that they've grown up being? Yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting point. I think with with spin, it looks to me that the subcontinental spinners, because of what they play on, 
can bowl with a more circular seam. It's a real spin boring thing. But, you know, like the Ashwin ball that he keeps doing everyone on the outside, that circular ball that yeah. comes down and spins yeah. on. And same as Axar, circular seam that spin that skids in. And it's really natural yeah. to them to do that because they play on that surface and that's what they know is... So you're attacking both sides of the bat all the time. Whereas I look at the English spinners, and because you play on different surfaces, you're searching for overspin and you're trying to bowl it up and over the top all the time that actually the delivery that's doing everyone is that what that sort of circular skidder. And we, we haven't quite developed that in our armory for Leach and Best. But, I mean, they're top-quality spinners that in England that will work. And in the subcontinent, they probably need a more circular ball. And I think I read an article about Lyon doing a lot of work before he went to India about working on that circular ball, um, which is a tough skill because it's a break in the wrist. And, I mean, Ashwin makes it look incredibly easy, but it, it's just not. Um and that's something that hopefully they'll be better for on the next trip they go out there. The learning that they've got from this time, they know what's been successful, which has been Axar and Ashwin doing people on the inside or outside with a skidding ball at, with mm. predominantly, you know, the big up over the top, like what we bowl. They've just got those changes and they're only going to develop and learn by playing. And I, I think the ages that they are, you know, there's a high level of expectation on them. Considering in a home series, they might not use the spinners as much. You know, they get a bit of a yeah. green one and, you know, the rotating broad Anderson Archer, Stokes, you know, they won't have the same role that they've got at the moment in this game. When you um, when, when you touched on amateur cricket, um, you know, obviously Sussex League now, um, I, I know this because Three Bridges put a lot of their game highlights out on um, on YouTube and what have you. Um, not, they've now split season, so they're half coloured clothing. I presume it'll be the same with Eastbourne, and then half white ball um, with white ball rather, and then half whites with red ball. Do you think that's a benefit? Because that kind of almost goes past the argument of win lose cricket only or half and half or whatever. Do you think that it's good for Premier League cricketers to be playing half season with white ball to learn the skills, you know, that they may need if they're going into professional cricket or? You know, most of these. I suppose you need to be in the professional pathway at probably fourteen, fifteen now, don't you? To, you know, it, it, do you see that as a good thing for amateur cricket or not? I think the split is probably a really good way of sort of being fair to it because most of us are quite happy playing limited overs cricket. You know, I used to hate those board draws where someone just blocks it and the game fizzles out from halfway through, and you know, it's it's just boring. It's bad cricket, but then. I selfishly got to bowl 20 overs, so I sort of got my um, match fees worth. But um, I, I definitely feel that the kids are going to have to learn those white ball skills, and that's probably some people's priority at the moment, the amount of white ball cricket they're viewing. that actually are like, what, what do I need this declaration cricket for? You know, what do I need to learn manipulating the ball and building an innings and like maybe scoring a 50 off 80 balls? You know, it's just not any words that they, they're used to hearing. And I think that's why if you do both, it gives it gives that young spinner a chance to, you know, build a spell and and take a few wickets. And then also in that ball draw game, a young leggy then gets a few free overs where he can develop and the batsman's not overly looking trying to attack him. Also, that would go down to another point, which is the art of captaincy, isn't it? And how captains have a huge role in these spinners' developments. And Joe Root has as big a role in Leach and Bess's development as we do in club cricket, supporting our young spinners. You know, it's 
it's a huge um, task as the captain. Often we don't talk about that enough. We often lump it on the young spinners, but the captains and coaches are just as responsible as we are. So it's, um, yeah, it's a fine balance, but I certainly think that split cricket is probably the way to go. Uh, and finally, um, you, look, you, I, I've loved this. I, I think it's been, I, I genuinely think that this interview and this podcast episode will do so much for so many people um, out there. So thank you so much for literally being so, so open. And I know we spoke before it and you said, ask me anything, you know, uh, we'll talk about anything. Um, to, to finish up, you, you've got two wonderful daughters. You've got a new lady in your life. Um, and you're part of a great squad and a wider club. Um, and, you know, and the landscape for, for you seems to be a positive one moving forward. But what is next for, you know, sorry to talk about you in the third person, but Tom Smith, the individual, and also Tom Smith, the cricketer? Yeah, I'm, I mean, sort of going back to that point about the new lady in my life, you know, that we're sort of six, seven months in now. And that, that um, was a really interesting time in my life before that because... You know, I just got to the point through all the bereavement stuff and being just lacking that fulfilment, you know, feeling really low about, you know, I just have cricket and the girls in my life. And, you know, I don't I just don't want that for me long term. And fortunately enough, I met Georgie um, and she's been, you know, she's turned things around for me. We, you know, we, we love one another and, and supported one another. And I think the the thing with her you know she's a doctor and she has a, a real high understanding of bereavement you know she deals in life and death and that, that's really helped support not only me but the children as well and mm. um so I think that through the darkness of sort of the first lockdown then meeting her before around the when the cricket season started has been you know a lovely period of time for us even though it's been a national lockdown and been really tough and we've had an opportunity to get to know one another um and then I guess from that point to answer the second part of the question, a lot of the things that I thought I might do six or seven months ago weren't on the table. You know, I couldn't leave the children and and um, pursue other ideas because I needed to be there for the children. And since Georgie, since I met Georgie and she's been a huge support with the girls, so it does allow me to explore other opportunities. You know, I often thought coaching wouldn't be a life for me because the time away from home. But then now actually I've signed a deal as a player coach. So I've got oh, nice. the I've got two years playing, and then the third year will be a player coach. So that was something that I hadn't even considered as a career path over the yeah. last few years. And I'm working on a couple of other exciting projects that probably wouldn't have been an option because I just didn't think I'd have the time to do it. So it's exciting. It's probably ever evolving, and something that you know I just want to do lots of stuff, and I want to try and support as many people as I can, and and do what I can. Um, so I don't really have a real clear path on what life is like outside of cricket. But what I do know is that I've got these three years um, with a year as a player coach to um, to give me a bit of time to to organise that. I'm doing my level four as part of that. So I'll start my level Brilliant. four next year. Um, so I'll be doing that and um, piecing the rest as it comes <laughs> along. How um, sorry, I, I know that was going to be my final question, but I'm really interested to find out how... How have the girls reacted to, to Georgie? Obviously, you know, that must be quite a big shift for them to have another, you know, female presence in their life. Who, and they will obviously appreciate the fact that she is, I guess, your new partner or girlfriend. And so I imagine you've been very open about that. How have they reacted to that situation? They adore her, which, is, which has just made life so much easier. You know, I, I did have 
you do have these worries that it might not just it might not be as romantic as you think it is you know their first meet and then suddenly like ah, i don't like her or whatever and it, it's just been the opposite like everything has just been so positive and she's just fitted into the family you know things like we just talk about laura all the time with her you know she wants to understand laura she wants to support the girls the way laura would like to support them you know as well as her own style but she just wants to understand and i think she has been amazing and the children i think i guess after two and a half years of that hole leaving you and wanting a female presence and you're never going to get your mum back but you're going to I think what they've always wanted is because we've had the nannies coming in and they've always been really close to the nannies and, you know, the female members of the family. And I think that first initial meet, they just wanted it to work. You know, this, this girl's coming okay. in, it's daddy's girlfriend. And then actually their relationship has just flourished from that point. Amazing. That's, that's phenomenal news. I, you know, it's, it's great that uh, Laura lives on. So, you know, it's such a, a vivid part of, you know, your life and the girl's life and, you know, the, what will be the family life moving forward. I've no doubt. Um, look, from my own personal perspective, uh, what an absolute joy to, to hear you talk about this stuff. Um, you know, it, it's been truly, truly wonderful. And, and I have no doubt whatsoever that it's going to help a huge amount of people who listen to it. So from the bottom of my heart, Tom, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you all. Um, so, Tom, we did pre-warn you about this. Uh, Simon's been scurrying away in the background, uh, and we have five questions uh, for the taverners, all uh, a two pounds each, should you get them wrong. Uh, Eugene has kindly offered to... Uh, Eugene has a habit of doing this. He, he kind of just look looks at people and thinks, hmm, do I think they know their own stats? And if he does, he always puts his hand up to, to be the, <laughs> the bloke who contributes alongside them. So he obviously has much confidence. Um Andy snuck in and read the last two questions, so I'm a little bit dubious about that. <laughs> no. I was halfway through writing question four, and then all of a sudden it was like, hey, I, hang on. I, I, know, I know number five because I watched it, and it, I'll be astounded if Tom doesn't know it. So I reckon we're eight quid max here. So, Robbo, um, I'll ask a new answer, yeah? Okay. Yeah. Question one, Tom. How many balls, and you, you, there is a leeway on this, because um, to ask you to get this dead on is just brutal. <laughs> Um, how many balls have you faced in first-class cricket? Blimey. Um, I had no <laughs> idea of, sort of what level of stats we were getting. I was hoping for like a batting or bowling average or something. Um, well, I think I've played 50 games. Um, oh. Um. Also, I guess you've got to work how many innings you might have had. Um, 700. Stick around as well. <laughs> um, 700? Is it way more than that? Way more. Yeah. I don't know where Simon's pulled this from. I mean, this is a surprisingly high number. The first, it's the first line on cricket. <laughs> how many balls? <laughs> yeah. Um, it's 1,000, 3,000. Not with it, not within the the, the leeway, Mark. Come ah. on, Sai. Three thousand five hundred and seventy. Well, better. That's, that's a lot of overs. And you, you, I tell you what. What? How many games did you say you played? Bang on. Well done. That was that a question? Don't confuse him. Don't confuse him, How many? How many balls? Have you let go of legal deliveries in uh, first-class cricket? 
Jeez, where could you get that stat from? <laughs> Quick info. Really? I think. Line number two. Right, Quick okay. info. Um, two thousand. Oh. Go on, Si. Six thousand eight hundred and forty-five. Deliveries. Bold. Is that is that just first class Balls, or is yeah. that Six. across his professional career? That's solely first class. That's a lot of overs. That's over a thousand overs in fifty games. Great mass. Hashtag mass. I thought I'd, I'd usually mass. like my four day Correct. get like in recent parts, I don't, I don't really bowl too many overs. I thought I'd yeah. Oh well. Maybe Objection, I do. Your Honor. I think I think that we're gonna have to we're gonna have to check these stats out. Hundred um, percent correct. In in your last List A game against Australia A, you got out one of the cricketers that I dislike most in the world. Although apparently he's a really nice bloke. Who was it? Matthew Wade. Correct. Yes. We're in. <laughs> oh, that's four quid. I reckon he's gonna get. Exactly. How many games have you played across all formats? Um, 240. Oh, close, but no cigar. Oh, close. 271. Uh, it was this year. Two, uh, five for 16 against Warwickshire at um, Edgebaston. I watched that game, A, with great pride, watching, watching Tom bowl an absolutely wonderful, wonderful spell. Um, but what a game it was to watch that. Was it um, Ian and um, Miles Hammond that just went absolutely ballistic and just yeah, smoked it everywhere? It anyway. Yeah, that's what we were talking about early in the pod, though, weren't we? Where, yeah. Um, no, I was going to say. Yeah, yeah, we thought it was a similar sort of pitch. Um, tw- I think that was a 12 over game as well. And then we got 100, and whatever we got, 140 or something. Coey yeah. smashed it absolutely everywhere. And that poor Bresnan over where it was, <laughs> I don't know how many, <laughs> they just never ending over. Um, he, um, yeah, he played brilliantly there. And I think. That was the difficult thing whenever I was talking about the man, the match, and they're like, oh, you've got five wickets and he only got 80. But I, I couldn't lose bowling there, I don't think. It, yeah, sort yeah. Of, you sling them down there, they've got to score at six a ball probably at most times. You know, um, and I was lucky because I bowled the short boundary end, so they had to attack nearly every ball of mine. Um, and oh, okay. got a few slogged up in the air, but it was... Um, it's strange that because third Pfeiffer, you know, like, pretty hard to come by in 2020. Yeah, I yeah. managed to gather up three of them. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> don't knock it. Um, Tom, th- thank you no. so much again, mate. Uh, I, I can't, I can't wait to see the reactions to this. I, I just think it's going to be mind blowing. Um, it's been mind blowing listening to it. Um, it, it truly has been wonderful. It's one of the you know, if not my favourite, you know, it, yours and Luke Sutton's are on a par for me. I think they've both been incredibly honest, open, um, no holds barred interviews, and and it's and it's truly wonderful for us to, you know, that you guys put the faith in us to, to to be able to, you know, come on and be so open about it. So yeah, thank you, thank you so much again. Cheers, guys. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate it. Cheers, Tom, mate.
Looking for a new cricket equipment partner for yourself or your club can sometimes be tricky. With so many options to choose from, how do you make the right choice? When you want quality, value and service, there really is only one place to start. For more than a decade, Woodstock Cricket have been producing award-winning, high-performance cricket bats from their Shropshire workshop. Matched with their classy soft goods, luggage and accessories, Woodstock Cricket really do tick all the boxes. Get in touch with Woodstock Cricket and find out why many loyal clubs, players and international customers can't be wrong at info at woodstockcricket.co.uk.